Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. Uh, Before we start, really quickly, just want to mention that today I will be talking to Donald Cohen. He is the founder and executive director of the group In the Public Interest. I'm going to be talking to him about the widespread problem of privatization. Uh, We'll also be talking to our good friend, Luke Savage, who also has a new book out. Uh, His book is The Dead Center. And as usual, Luke has a lot of great comments about centrism and liberalism. So uh, stay tuned for that. I will be making my own very brief comments about a sort of a new classification of worker that I recently stumbled across. Uh, Bloomberg is trying to make the term flexitariat happen. So I'll, I'll, I'll give some thoughts on that. Uh, but before all of that, of course, I am, I, I have to bring on uh, none other than Kale Brooks. Kale, uh, what's on your mind this week? Yo, uh, hey, what's up, Jen? Um, Hi. Well, I think what's on my mind is really what's on all of your minds. Just a guess. But um, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the Brazilian election. Um, Yeah, that happened. That was important. Um, And uh, there's actually, we're going to be doing a lot of coverage. Jacobin has already done a good amount of coverage in the run-up. We're going to be doing a lot more over the next month, two months. Um, Obviously, uh, the results last night of the first round, they have a two round election uh, system. So in the first round, Lula came out on top, but not enough to uh, to, uh, you know, to just kind of call it there. Um, there will be a second round. Um, so he ended up getting a little over 48 uh, percent of the vote. Uh, Bolsonaro got a little over 43 percent. So almost a six million vote difference. Um which in most, you know, countries and most in most people's conceptions of a democracy, you would say clear cut. Lula won. Um, and he did, but there is going to be another round and, uh, there is a lot still kind of up in the air right now, um, with that situation. And so, um, even us recording this, uh, technically before it's going to come out, who knows, maybe there's going to be something, hopefully nothing terrible happens this week. Uh, so fingers crossed, I suppose. Um, but um, what I think we can say right now um, are maybe some of just kind of the more general trends of how this Brazilian election fits within um, kind of just global politics, within kind of trends within the region, within, uh, you know, the revitalization of the left. Um, obviously, Lula, if you don't know, was a former president of Brazil. Um, he left office as you know, with like ridiculously high approval ratings, 80 something percent uh, approval ratings, um, came out of the trade union movement, uh, was just a working class guy, kind of rose the ranks within uh, and then, you know, was essential to the, the Brazilian Socialist Workers Party, the PT, um, and uh, and has kind of always been the figurehead, even when he wasn't the the actual leader, either of the party or of the country um, of kind of the, the workers movement in Brazil. Um, and so this is kind of the, the return of Lula and of, um, kind of his place as the head of the workers party. And so I think there's some interesting questions that are worth going into, uh, with really with two main things, one, which has to do with, uh, class D alignment, mm-hmm. um, of how, 
uh, working people mostly. That's mostly what we're talking about with class alignment is working and poor people, how they have changed uh, their politics and their voting patterns and for the most part have dropped out of politics over the last few decades. And then on the other hand, um, this question of left populism and mm -hmm. kind of, which is a little bit of a strange word at this point. I think like I, a lot of people have already kind of closed the casket on left populism and said that was that 10 year period kind of ended with COVID. Um, but we've had this revitalization within Latin America over the last mm -hmm. few years um, of, you know, again, now it's the new pink tide. There's always, so it's kind of, I, there's the, an awkwardness. The pinker tide? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> we're going to get it right this time, pink tide. <laughs> um, but there, there is this kind of the pink tide coming back or basically kind of leftists um, coming to office across mm -hmm. uh, the continent. And so mm -hmm. I think that there, it's just full disclosure. I don't think we have the answers unfortunately <laughs> but i think we have some <laughs> sense of what's going on that uh -huh. like or at least we can like try to try to push in the direction where we will eventually find answers to these mm -hmm. things because I, I i think you would agree these are like some of the still the most important pressing questions right, at this right. at this like general macro scale of like what even is the left doing how right. does how do we get out of this situation right and it is interesting that class dealignment seems to be happening on a global level. Uh, we've, of course, talked on this show a lot about how it's happening in the U.S. and in uh, Europe. And in fact, on our last episode, we talked about how it's happening specifically in Sweden and to a certain extent in Italy. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are definitely Latin America is definitely a different context in a way. Um, but again, you can see kind of some similarities and overlaps happening. Uh, I, I guess for the recent Brazil election, like my thoughts off the bat. Um, oh, by the way, I, I do want to preview that we are going to have Sabrina Fernandez on next week, who is like an actual expert and Brazilian, and we'll be able to talk about this in much greater detail than either of us. Yeah. Uh, but just some off the cuff remarks before we get the real person. Uh, you know, I this the election was a little surprising to me uh, because Lula was doing so much better in the polls, at least from, you know, my sort of cursory understanding. Uh, and it seems like what happened isn't really that Lula underperformed, but rather Bolsonaro did like way, way better than anybody thought he would. Right. And uh, I, you know, I think that kind of brings up an interesting thing about Lula's uh, base and sort of campaign this time around, which, at least as I understand it, um, included, you know, not just uh, working class or, you know, working people who responded to his sort of left populist message, but he also had a lot of establishment backing. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that part of the reason for that uh, wasn't that, you know, the establishment, so to speak, it like loves Lula, but it was like a reaction against Bolsonaro, right? So obviously during Bolsonaro's term, uh, the economy was very chaotic. I think a lot of, you know, political elites and business elites uh, sort of wanted to return to some kind of stability, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody's sick, of course, of the Bolsonaro-Trump comparisons. But I think in this particular instance, it is kind of salient because uh, a, a fair degree of the establishment also aligned against Trump in both 2016 and 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that's not to say, of course, that Lula like sold out in any way or that he like shouldn't have accepted mainstream support where he found it. But I do think that it makes things a little more complicated uh, it, when it comes to things like class 
class dealignment or trying to revive some kind of left populism because, you know, part of what makes, I think, figures like Bolsonaro uh, sort of quietly popular, like that seems to be what happened uh, during this election that, you know, um, there was sort of like a silent or like hidden part of his base that that ended up coming out for the election, but wasn't really visible in the polls and stuff. And you can see that happening in the U.S. as well. Um, I, I you you know, it, it just makes it more complicated when the right wing figure like actually is hated by the establishment and people in general are sick of the establishment. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think just and part of like to piggyback off of what you're saying, I mean, I I do think it's it's important to like understand who these figures are and what their coalitions are that it's not just so it's not just oh that's the right like person right, that's the yeah. that's like the the populist that's the leftist whatever um that in many ways like bolsonaro you know so that with the trump comparison in many ways like had an even worse covid response than <laughs> the u.s that like actually brazil had maybe the worst in the like as far as like major developed countries um of like the administration like basically like hawking snake oil like mm -hmm. because it was enriching like their buds it was like it was uh just like a gross mishandling of the situation aside from the fact that like it was just a massive like privatization of like massive parts of the brazilian economy it was basically just like st stripping it for parts it was mm -hmm. like um there's a whole lot you could say about kind of corruption good and bad whatever as far as like how that do actually leads to like good economic growth like there's actually there's a ways in which sometimes corruption within developing countries actually ends up supporting growth in an awkward way but we're not going to talk about that right now because that's not what the show's about that's for another time yeah, another time but <laughs> that's a whole nother episode but yeah. yeah the point being that like this is just like this was just stripping it apart just because it was like robbery basically this mm -hmm. was like public robbery um and so it is interesting that like the the brazilian ruling class like basically said no screw that like we were fine with lula and part of that has to do with who lula is insofar as he was a politician who you know wasn't like you know uh he wasn't like some lenin figure he wasn't some you know like salvador allende figure like right. he actually was very he he kind of towed this line that was like comfortable between on the one hand these massive ca cash transfer programs of mm -hmm. uplifting and uplifting a ton of poor people eradicating a ton of poverty mm -hmm. at the same time basically saying you know how can i help business grow that it was it was this kind of like it's more akin to maybe like a, a developmental model than like social democracy mm -hmm. that being said like it was still like a massive incredible achievement for working in poor people in right. in brazil that's mm -hmm. there's not taking any of that away from it um but as far as like you know, what that actually means for politics. I think there's this kind of awkwardness that we were seeing within the campaign. And, you know, uh, people, there's other people who, again, we'll touch on this much more in depth with people who actually study this stuff for a living. But um, my sense of it was, in many ways, the campaign was elect me, Lula, because don't you remember how great it was when I was president? Like, let's go back to old Lula. Let's right. go back to the good times. Like mm -hmm. before all, you know, all the Bolsonaro stuff, before mm -hmm. all the, the car wash stuff. Like, let's it's all in the past. Like, we're going back to, like, why you love me in the first place, which was that, like, I'm here to end poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think it clearly is popular. Like, he clearly almost got 50%. He almost, like, uh, you know, made the second uh, round of the election mm -hmm. unnecessary. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, it does kind of call into question, like, well, what actually is a left platform in a major developed country? How do you, what, like, Bernie Sanders gave us a model, but Bernie also lost. And, right. like, and I think we have to, like, be thinking, like, you know, 
we have to be open to what actually is a workable, coherent vision of the future that we can pitch to people. Mm -hmm. And that does not rely on the fact that you were a former popular president. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that raises the other question you brought up of what can we actually do about class dealignment of like, Obviously, globally, but even just looking here in the U.S., that's like sort of a perennial question that I think that we grapple with. I I guess I'll say, like, for my part, I I still remain committed to what I call the Center for Working Class Politics Theory of Change, uh, which you guys, uh, we've talked about it on the show before, but the Center for Working Class Politics and Jacobin ran a study, uh, I guess, last year that, uh, like, looked at basically try to understand how Democrats can win back working class voters. And uh, I'm paraphrasing and you should definitely like check out the study in, in all of its glory. Um, but basically the, the, what I call the center for working class politics theory of change is like campaign ha- campaign early and hard on bread and butter issues and don't wade into the culture war stuff. Now that doesn't mean move to the center. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, do any like dog whistles or whatever. Like, I just have to feel I I feel like I have to put that out there because I think some people have mischaracterized the study a little bit. Um, But it really just means like do what Bernie did. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I still think that that is the I still think that that's the best course because all of these other kind of um all of these other courses have been tried and they haven't gone over well. Mm-hmm. Now that said, uh, has this theory of change produced a clear winner yet? No. I mean, you know, right. we're looking at John Fetterman in Pennsylvania now. You already pointed out that Bernie didn't win. Um, I'll go ahead and like- Sorry I, to point that out yeah, again. Sorry to, sorry to rub that in. <laughs> no, I mean, but I will also say that, you know, I think that at least from what I could tell, like Lula kind of campaigned on a sort of similar tone, at least like he had a famous campaign motto where he basically said, like, I want everybody to be able to afford barbecue and beer. Uh, There's like a more elegant, like Portuguese term for it. But, you know, I'm just paraphrasing. Honestly, that's a great slogan. It is. It is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and so, like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I don't think that I don't think that we know for sure that it works yet. I, I still I still think that this is the way to go, but yeah. honestly, like I'm curious what you think because another possibility is that you can't put the genie back into the bottle at this point. Like class dealignment is so far gone that like I don't know, it yeah. sucks to think about that, but anyway, your thoughts. <laughs> well, cuz I think there's there's two things. One, um I do think uh not all class di- dealignments are the same. So right. in so, yeah. so for instance, like the problem in the U.S. to be more specific. So I think it is a general phenomenon that we've seen around the world of uh, that working people kind of or like working parties and socialist parties, left parties kind of um, losing working class support um, and like institutions losing that support and kind of working people becoming less political. Um, I think in the U.S. it's just it's like a total drop off um, that that's the more dominant phenomenon. The secondary phenomenon in the U.S. is moving to the right Mm -hmm. that like that the you know that like a Trumpism like has picked up not like you know tons and tons and tons of working people but it has like succeeded yeah in a way that like Romney and and the, you know the right. Bushes couldn't yeah. right whereas like I think in Brazil you have had a much more coherent stronger right-wing vision that mm-hmm. like that this was this this like should be if it's not already the headline the fact that like Bolsonaro like majorly outperformed the polls and and still is in a minority position but that like there is like actually a coherent uh right-wing 
vision and, and platform that um, is kind of sucking people up. And maybe that some of that has to do with the institutions of Brazil, that it is like you have it's mandatory voting um, or kind of, um, I think. I don't know. We'll, we'll check with Sabrina? that. Sabrina? Yeah, we'll check. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we're going we're gonna to check in <laughs> we'll, on We'll this. get back to you. Um, but I do think, coming back to the other the other point about, like, you know, what actually, what politics actually deals with de- class dealignment, um, I think the, the Center for Working Class Politics model is correct, but it's a minimal correct uh, right. uh, strategy insofar as, like, that's how you just even enter into the game. Right. That That's yeah. how you're even viable politically as, like, an option. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. like... Lula is in a different situation. Like they're, this is like, they actually have the party, they have the history, they have the platform, they have the the candidate and they're up in the general election. So they're like miles ahead of where the U S left is. And, and we're kind of looking into the future in a weird way, even though like it's, this is like Terry Gilliam's Brazil now, but like, um, where like now we're seeing, okay, well what happened when all of these things were there and they, and they pushed this kind of platform and, and it might be enough or it might not be. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say. And like, mm-hmm. and again, I think the, the bigger story is how well Bolsonaro kind of held on despite all of this. Um, and hopefully, you know, this doesn't end up in a horrible, tragic coup situation or something similar with Lula and um, that the election goes fair and fine. And, hope, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I do think it's, that I think is what we should be trying to make sense of. Like, mm-hmm. do, does the platform that he proposed work, and to what extent is any of it actually even replicable? If it right. really just is, like, let's just go back to Lulaism. I don't know. Moral of the story. Well, I actually have. I, I mean, I have like one last question uh, for you, just to bring just to bring it back to the U.S. as always, as but we it, as we should. <laughs> uh, but it seems like. Like, because I think that, you know, cross-national comparisons are always useful, but obviously, as you pointed out, like, class dealignment is going to look different in every country, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that the actual, like, strategic lessons that we're able to draw are probably a little more limited. Um, But in the U.S., like, it does seem like there are a couple of kind of, like, economic populists uh, who are running uh, or, or, you know, have tried to run in the last several years. Um, to varying degrees of success. And I'm just wondering, like, do you think, I don't know, American politics is weird. Like, I I, I guess the (laughs) question, like, I guess the question is like, do you think that we are going to have enough examples or like enough case studies of the kind of like center for working class politics model in the US, like at the end of, you know, five years from now that we can, we can like be able to assess whether it worked? I don't know. Yeah, because I, I mean that like the like I was saying before like the only limitation or like the big limitation of kind of putting all of our eggs into that basket so to speak is like we actually don't have like we don't have enough we don't have enough instances of success because we just don't have enough instances of it being tried at least not in the last 40 years. Yeah. I I worry I mean so much of kind of the the left populist wave in in the US has been tied to the Bernie campaigns yeah. and we don't know what 2024 holds for us. We don't know what the man is thinking and we'll let him decide. But it does seem like insofar as like after 2020 ended, it was kind of the end of that kind of the the two campaigns feeling something much more coherent. The like the in-between wasn't like, 
uh, you know, it's over, Bernie's over. It was like, well, there's we're, we're gearing up. This is like a, an ongoing process. And Sanders was campaigning around the country. And, and I do think, um, you know, there's something kind of there's some momentum like was killed with COVID. Um, and so it's I think it, it appears to have become more difficult for leftists and progressives and socialists uh, to to get elected in, in the last couple of years. And and so I don't think that's I don't think that's the end. It might be, but I don't think it is of kind of this this um, moment we're in. And um, and I think a lot of it's just kind of like it is contingent on like, you know, you don't you don't get to just do whatever you want whenever you want in history. You Like there are right. moments where like conditions are better for you. And so yeah. um, I think we have had success with like the bread and butter working class candidates. And but a lot of candidates have lost and like, right. you know, like. There's a lot of, in fact, like, if anything, I think, like, it's been more the case that you've had more kind of the activist kind of left candidates getting through instead of, like, the the working class candidates. Like, you know, um, I don't know, I'm just thinking of our good pal, Paul Prescott in Philly, for instance. He's on the mind. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's tough. I mean, I, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can really know. I think just kind yeah. of the general left strategy is, like, you should just try to get as many in as possible so that we can at least figure out what works. Like mm-hmm. we're at least playing the game at that point rather yeah. than like still just on the outside guessing, you know, maybe my strategy is better than yours. Maybe right. not. Um, yeah. But I don't think we have any strategy still, at least for right. the U S as far yeah. as like class alignment. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to keep towing the center for working class politics line until you hear otherwise. Uh, Kale, yeah. shall we dive Prove into the rest wrong. of the show? Prove us yeah, wrong. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come at us. <laughs> yeah, yes, um, let's do it. All right. I'm now joined by Luke Savage. He is a staff writer at Jacobin and the author of the brand new book, The Dead Center. Luke, great to see you as always. And uh, congrats on the book. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me. So the Dead Center, uh, obviously have to dive right into that. And I think it makes sense to start with the title. Uh, Now, of course, the Dead Center refers to kind of the dead end of centrism, right? And that's sort of the subject of your book. Uh, And and I want to talk about what the center means, uh, which which might sound a little simplistic, uh, but I think a lot of people sort of on the left and right of the spectrum tend to think of the center as something that operates kind of like an Overton window, right? And just as an example, like, I'll say that, you know, former Labor Secretary Robert Reich has said in the past, like, well, I, I used to be uh, uh, in the center. And the problem is not that I'm now a far leftist, but that, you know, the left and the right or like the, the Republican Party has shifted so far to the right that the center has moved. So now I just seem like I'm far left. Right. And uh, on the other side of the political spectrum, I know that Elon Musk has sort of said a similar thing where he's like, well, like, I'm just like a regular old person in the center. But what's happened is the Democratic Party has shifted so far to the left and become so woke that like now I seem like somebody who's right wing. So that's a kind of, you know, a uh, contingent and fluctuating idea of the center, right? Now, I, I feel like, you know, you in your book and also, you know, us on this show and when we've had you on in the past, we sort of tend to make center synonymous with liberal or with liberalism. Uh, and and I, you know, I, I wonder if there's a way to like kind of reconcile those two conceptions or maybe the question for you is, how exactly should we should we understand this idea of the center? And like, is it is it really just another way of describing like a neoliberal consensus? 
Well, I think yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that uh, centrism definitely does imply all of the things you just mentioned. When we talk about the center, we are talking about, in an American context anyway, we're talking about uh, you know a, a pretty narrow range of politics extending from you know, a handful of figures uh, who might have still have an R next to their name uh, over to kind of, uh, you know, the, the elite liberals on the other side. It's not exactly a, a huge swath of ideological terrain we're talking about here. It's roughly the terrain between, you know, Barack Obama and, and David Brooks. Um, so in a sense, we are just describing the neoliberal consensus, but it is worth thinking a little more seriously about what centrism actually is. And, and, you know, I've spent an inordinate amount of time kind of pondering that question. And I think the way I see it uh, is that, you know, centrism, you know, it's not really an ideology as such. It might have features uh, that, that, you know, resemble those of an ideology. Uh, and again, those, are, those features are just the ones that we tend to associate with liberalism today, by and large. Um, but in terms of kind of enucleating exactly what it is, um, you know, perhaps in the way that Corey Robin uh, does in his book, The Reactionary Mind with Conservatism. If I was to do the same thing with centrism, I would say that centrism is the, uh, uh, I mean, I guess I just said it wasn't an ideology, but I'm going to call it an ideology now. I mean, uh, it's not an ideology uh, in the sense of uh, referring to a a series of specific commitments or facets of a political program, but it's an ideology in the sense, uh, you know, it's the ideology of people who, uh, are proximate to certain kinds of uh, institutions and who turn uh, the processes of those institutions, um, you know, they elevate them to the status of kind of uh, ends in themselves. So the means, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, be- become the ends. And that's how you get things like uh, bipartisanship uh, being fetishized, you know, as a, or being elevated again, not for uh, not on the basis of any outcome that we're going to get through bipartisanship, but just the idea that it's uh, an inherently, uh, you know, noble and, and, and laudable enterprise. So uh, I think that uh, the phenomenon of uh, centrism, as I just described, it has become especially acute over the past kind of 30 or 40 years uh, because there has been such a uh, rolling back of the kinds of democratic pressures that were once exerted on uh, political institutions. So once those pressures have been rolled back, uh, kind of all you have is the uh, felt uh, experience, the lived experience of people who inhabit those institutions, which are now increasingly removed from everyday life and from the interests of uh, the majority. You have those kind of elevated to the status of an ideology that uh, you know contends to be the uh, the dominant one, even if very few people outside of a you know handful of extremely rich area codes, I think, really believe in it. Right. Yeah. I I, I want to now ask you about um, sort of the promises and limitations of liberalism, uh, because that's a major theme in your book. Uh, obviously, you go pretty heavy on the limitations. Uh, but But something that, you know, sort of has occurred to me is that it does seem like in a way that liberalism, at least as it's sort of operated in the U.S., uh, does promise some degree of redistribution and a solution to poverty. And I think the maybe like most uh, clearest example of that, again, in the U.S. context is like FDR and the New Deal. Right. And, you know, uh, obviously, you know, you can uh, throw a rock and hit a dozen criticisms of the New Deal. But kind of at this point, I'm like, huh, like if we were to do that over again, like I would take it. Uh, So so maybe you know, I, I, I do want to ask, like, do you think liberalism offer actually does offer some kind 
kind of redistributive solution or a solution to poverty? And if the answer is yes, where do you see it kind of not uh, going far enough, I suppose? Well, I think, uh, you know, in the present moment, it doesn't offer a solution to poverty. I don't think it even really wants to think in terms of being, uh, you know, think in terms of poverty or, or anti-poverty. It wants to think in, in you know, there's a, there's a different, uh, there's diff- entirely different framework at play. There's, you know, it's it's all about aspiration and extending opportunities. And, right. uh, you know, you hear, you hear a lot more about social mobility and things like that. And, and I think that's because... Um, and you know you and you do hear gest- you do see gestures at other things and i mean that's because the democratic party is ultimately a coalition and parts of it large parts of it i think large numbers of people who actually vote for the democratic party do want a politics of redistribution so there's a fair amount of just incoherence that's reflected in the the rhetoric of of um of of liberals today but no i don't think the concept of of redistribution you know uh which would be necessary um in any kind of anti-poverty program really fits within the broader ideological framework of liberalism as it's, as it's been constituted, at least for the past, again, 30 or 40 years. Um, because there's, I think, a, increasingly been a deep-seated belief that the unequal outcomes that we see in American society today are, you know, more or less, maybe with some, you know, some caveats, but more or less are the, you know, a product of you know, people have divergent talents and skills and different levels of effort. Um, they, they produce different social value in terms of what they do. You know, this is where that whole kind of learn to code uh, <laughs> thing comes from. And if that's how you think about uh, a society, you know, the way you think about social policy is going to be, uh, you know, there, there's some pretty profound implications because, uh, everything's going to become about, you know, giving people sort of a hand up, you know, it's going to be about, um, uh, you know, extending opportunity, these kinds of phrases, you know, there's, there, there can be half-hearted concessions to the idea that, you know, not everybody might begin life at the same point, but it's not really about seeing poverty as a moral evil or seeing it as a constitutive feature of the economy that, that, that should be done away with and, or even, you know, can be right. done away with. Um, so, you know, instead what you get is, are these, I mean, what you're much more likely to get anyway is the, these kind of patchwork programs, um, you know, sometimes you get things that maybe at least you know, on paper begin as kind of big redistributive programs, but then by the time they've actually made it through the, you know, the cul-de-sac that is the American legislative process, you know, they come out the other end and they're just sort of, um, it's a mixed metaphor, I guess cul-de-sac wouldn't have another end, but you know what I mean? Uh, you know, they, they come out the other end and, and it's like all of it, you know, there's all these carve-outs, there's all this means testing, right. um, and the program is no longer, uh, you know, meaningfully re- redistributive in the way that it once was. And, you know, that's a reflection of all kinds of things, but I think one of them is the fact that, um, you know, being anti-poverty and being uh, and practicing a politics of redistribution has fit less and less into the, uh, you know, actual ideological framework of, of American liberalism today. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose that then raises the question of, is there any part of American liberalism uh, that is worth recuperating? Uh, because, the, I mean, you know, this is a this is kind of a larger question, but like the liberal tradition, so to speak, is very long and storied, right? So uh, I don't know, like, should, is, is there any part that's worth redeeming? Uh, should socialists try to rescue liberalism from liberals? Well, I, I think uh, there's something... I, th- I think there's something to the idea. I mean, I don't think we necessarily yeah. have to call it that in a, you know, a public facing uh, way or whatever, right. you know, uh, it, it, the, the question is a question about how we go about it. But in theory, 
Um, you know, I think that it's, uh, you know, I think for a number of reasons, that's, you know, kind of a wise course to take. I mean, um, you know, speaking uh, specifically of the United States, I mean, it just is the case that the American tradition uh, is, broadly speaking, a liberal tradition going mm-hmm. back a long way. And so even, you know, all, all, all kinds of different strands of uh, thought, some of them radical uh, strands of thought, have expressed themselves through the prism of something called liberalism, um, which is, you know, a kind of heterogeneous uh, and complicated uh, phenomenon. But, uh, so, so that's one thing. Um, and a second thing, I think, is that there is, as I see it, just a macro-historical problem with the liberal tradition going back hundreds of years, which is that the liberal tradition is both a, a series of ideas that I think are, uh, or a series of beliefs that are, I think, embraced by many people on the left and sometimes even more consistently defended by people on the left than mm-hmm. uh, people who call themselves liberals, beliefs about individual freedom, uh, the importance of civil liberties, I mean, ba- you know, basic things like the extension of the franchise, these sorts of things that, that I think you can make an argument, you know, broadly uh, are, come out of the liberal tradition in some way or, or expressed uh, through the liberal tradition. But at the same time, the liberal tradition is also something else because the ascendancy of uh, pretty much everything I just talked about, the ascendance of those ideas has been uh, you know, contiguous with the rise of, of markets and capitalism and kind of modern bourgeois society. And so you end up with, you know, a, a, a tradition about individual freedom, which is also about um, individual freedom as expressed through markets, through capitalism, through a system of property rights. Right. Um, and I, so I think one of our jobs as people on the left is to kind of hold up a mirror to liberals and to liberalism and to argue that the most worthwhile parts of the tradition uh, cannot actually be realized within a traditional liberal capitalist framework. You know, mm-hmm. real individual flourishing requires, um, among other things, and at minimum, a politics that it, that extends democracy uh, pr- into economic life, especially in a more right. profound and far-reaching way. And you can't do that um, when uh, you know you you all when your when your conception of individual rights is so. Uh, uh, inextricable from, you know, property rights and uh, a kind of idea of, um, you know, capital ownership as, you know, a, an expression of individual freedom. I mean, maybe that made sense coming out of feudalism, right? You know, uh, bourgeois ideology was pretty liberatory then, but it, it's not uh, it's not a framework that makes any sense in the present day if we care about individual freedom. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, on on the subject of these kind of like weird entanglements, um, I, I realized, you know, we have had you on the show quite a few times to talk about liberalism in general. And I never have asked you about the concept of radical liberalism, uh, which I think was a term that sort of sprang up on the British left. Uh, uh, I, our friend Cedric Johnson, I think, refers to the same phenomenon as militant liberalism. And uh, what this is, is, uh, you know, I... People are probably familiar with the term, at least to some degree. But in my mind, what it is, is a kind of like blending of like extreme sort of even ultra left rhetoric with like incredibly tepid, if not regressive policy positions or whatever. Right. So like just to use an example, like in my mind, a rad lib, so to speak, would say something like, um, like we must we must confront and reckon with the history of settler colonialism and systemic anti-blackness. But then they would be talking about like diversifying Harvard or something. Yeah. So um, I, I and, and so the question for you is like, 
why do you think this this type of rhetoric became so popular? And the reason why I want to ask you is because it reminds me a lot of a similar uh, sort of phenomenon you've observed, which is that liberals love using this kind of like rhetoric of emergency and urgency mm. to talk about nothing or to like, <laughs> I don't know, to kind of to, to sort of veil the fact that they're doing nothing. Right. So, uh, Luke, thoughts thoughts on the rad libs? <laughs> So, I mean, it, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there was that uh, piece that was written, I mean, way, I can't remember if it's from the 1960s or 70s about the liberal to ultra left mm-hmm, pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I might, might be confusing it with an, another more recent piece, but I mean, that's a real phenomenon and it goes, uh, you know, it goes back, it has deep historical roots. Um, I mean, part of what we see in the present day, I think really is just the internet and the fact that <laughs> So much of discourse is effectively gamified by social media such that like there are there's a reward, there's a built in incentive structure for taking maximalist uh, positions and for, uh, you know, issuing these kind of like maximalist pronouncements and decrees that may not be tied to any kind of, you know, there's no maximalist political strategy to go along with them. As you said, you know, often it's like we have to confront white supremacy. And that's why, you know, anybody who doesn't support, you know, Kamala Harris is, you know, is is like the, you know, is is as good as Donald Trump or whatever. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like it's so part of it's just that. But I think there is something else going on um, that 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 also partly explains it. I mean, uh, one of the things that the book is about uh, is the ways in which, you know, so much of uh, what we call democratic politics is, is a, and I've alluded to this already, is kind of cordoned off from actual democratic pressure, democratic participation. Um, and the thing is, you know, we still have the institutions of democracy. We still have, you know, open primaries in the United States. We still have uh, elections that people go to vote in quite regularly. Um, and so, you know, the participation has to come from somewhere. And I think it's it's been redirected into a kind of uh, just daily spectacle more and more. Um, you know, cable news is part of that story. Social media is part of that story. And so, you know, what partisans, whether they're people on the right, whether they're, you know, people in the MAGA movement or whether they're, uh, you know, people that watch Rachel Maddow, what they're offered is this kind of sphere where you can you can have a you know you can have a great time you can have all your pleasure centers uh stimulated you can uh you can talk in this very sweeping and grandiose way you can be uh you can you can hate the people that you're allowed to hate it'll give you permission to do all those kinds of things and to kind of own the other side and the stakes of it are pretty low because there there's no real political practice attached to them or insofar as you know insofar as there is any uh any you know polit- political activism, if you want to call it, that's attached to this, it's just posting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just telling your friends uh, go and vote for the Democratic Party. There's there's an essay in the book in which I reviewed uh, a book by David Plouffe, the Obama guy, mm-hmm. um, called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And when I sat down to review that book, I mean, I read the whole thing and I thought, what the hell am I going to say about this book? There's nothing in it. Mm-hmm. It's a guide to it's a guide to fighting the right that is just all about like. Uh, you know, weaponize your email, you know, like do, do like do posts. And then I realized <laughs> that actually the takeaway from this book is that Pluff, you know, and many others like him, just take it as axiomatic that as an ordinary person, you're going to have nothing to do with um, this process in a serious way. You're not going to be able to influence it. Um, he even, you know, as just right at the beginning of the book, he says, like, look, we don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. And it doesn't matter because <laughs> we know they're going to be better than Donald Trump. This book came out a year, more than a year, I think, before the uh, before the election. 
and uh, before the primaries. And it's and he's just telling you, like, the, that's irrelevant. Like, what matters is that you do post, you tell your friends <laughs> to vote for the Democratic Party. Yeah. So where does this Radlib position come from? It's partly the Internet, but I think it's also partly uh, the retreat of uh, small d democracy in a big way. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, uh, get Luke Savage's book, The Dead Center, while it's hot. Uh, we will go ahead and link that down below. Luke, again, congrats on the book. Uh, pleasure to see you as always. Thanks so much, Jen. This was fun. All right. So I will be back in a moment with some brief comments on an apparently new classification of worker uh, that has arisen called the Flexitariat. Uh, but before I talk about the Flexitariat, a quick message from a few of our sponsors. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in October and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past by Robert Bevan, a look at how statues, heritage, and the built environment have become the battleground for the culture wars. Is Mother Dead, the new novel by Norwegian writer Vigdis Jorth, which follows the cat-and-mouse game of surveillance and psychological torment between a middle-aged artist and her aging mother. Radius, a story of feminist revolution by Yasmin el a haunting, intimate account of the women and men who built a feminist revolution in the middle of the Arab Spring. And Power and Resistance, Foucault, Deleuze, Derrida, Althusser, by Yoshiyuku Sato, a provocative reinterpretation of the post-structuralist theory of power. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Zoned Out is a podcast that examines the capitalist city and attempts to imagine how the socialist city could replace it. Hosted by Rin, urban planner and person who has a last name but really values privacy, she does deep dives into various facets of urban geography, planning, and economics in this monthly podcast. You can listen to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more at zonedoutpodcast.neocities.org. Another week, another workplace trend. First, it was the Great Resignation, then it was Quiet Quitting, then it was Quiet Firing, and this time it's the rise of the Flexitariat. A recent Bloomberg article proclaims, Say hello to the Flexitariat, empowered employees who want a change. The desire for flexibility, an employee-employer power shift, and the death of the commute are defining the latest work era. This so-called flexitariat is apparently made up of white-collar workers who value the ability to work remotely and prioritize greater work-life balance above all. Bloomberg states, Today, the unquestioning drudge, hemmed in by the commute, has been replaced by a highly assertive worker who puts freedom and flexibility at the center of their working identity. According to the piece, this new class of assertive worker has been made possible by a rebalancing of power between employers and employees that occurred during and after the pandemic. What's more, Bloomberg argues, is that white-collar demands are becoming a contagion that may indirectly increase the power of frontline workers, too. It's true, of course, that during the pandemic, plenty of white-collar workers suddenly found themselves working remotely and genuinely enjoying not having to commute to an office. But the fact that some employers are continuing to allow knowledge workers to work from home doesn't exactly mean that bosses have less power and workers have more. In fact, there's no reason to think that employers won't be able to take advantage of remote work. For one thing, some research has already suggested that working remotely can increase productivity, and during the pandemic, people working from home actually tended to put in more hours doing work than they had when they were working from a designated office. And while, yes, some companies are now pressuring workers to return to the office, 
others have quickly realized that they can save on overhead by just having employees work out of their own homes. One recent study has also found that employers are increasingly using remote work as an excuse to pay employees less. As NPR reports, a majority of large companies, those with more than 250 employees, and companies in finance and insurance, real estate, information, and professional and business services say they're using remote work policies as a tool to appease workers and tamp down demands for raises. But the biggest advantage of all for bosses when it comes to the so-called flexitariat, particularly at a moment when public approval for unions is higher than it's been in 60 years, might be that a remote workforce is one that's inherently harder to unionize. For instance, we already know that the lack of a centralized shop floor is part of why it's so difficult to organize workers like home care aides, seasonal farm workers, and Uber drivers. And even in a white-collar context, the seeds of a union drive often begin with informal conversations in the physical office, whether it's coworkers blowing off steam in the break room or chatting while passing in the hall or walking to lunch with each other. And for all the talk of white-collar workers' demands paving the way for others, it's still the case that flexibility for low-wage workers tends not to mean the freedom to dial into Zoom meetings from the couch, but more often means temporary work or gig work, unstable work schedules, and employers doing anything they can to classify workers as, quote, independent contractors in order to skirt labor laws regarding wages and benefits. This is all to say that workplace trends come and go, but in capitalism, employers always maintain the upper hand in the absence of a strong labor movement. Things like union density or rates of collective bargaining coverage might not be 100% perfect measures of worker power, but they're certainly more reliable than clinging to vague trends, whether that's quiet quitting or the rise of the flexitariat. Finally, I also have to mention that this, of course, isn't the first time that people have gotten excited about a supposedly new classification of worker. Ten years ago, in a fledgling publication called Jacobin, a writer named Bhaskar Sankara critiqued the notion of a precariat, which was at the time the hottest concept concerning the evolution of the workforce. Thinkers like Guy Standing argued that neoliberalism had created an emerging class of workers called the precariat, or people stripped of stable full-time jobs and forced instead to rely on short-term and temporary gig work to make a living. But as Bosker pointed out back in 2012, precarious low-wage employment wasn't really a new invention of neoliberalism. In fact, it's kind of just the default for how work has been throughout most stages of capitalism. The one exception in the U.S. was the New Deal and post-war period when wages and job stability were high and the middle class was growing. And what exactly made those work conditions possible during that era? A fighting labor movement and working class struggle. Which is all to say that those who rush to identify a new kind of work or worker can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. But at least back in 2012, those who used the term precariat understood the ways that flexibility and decentralization could end up being advantageous to bosses and not just convenient for employees. The recent celebration of the rise of a new flexitariat, on the other hand, simply mistakes a limited white-collar trend for actual empowerment. All right, so I'm now joined by Donald Cohen. He's the founder and executive director of the Research Center in the Public Interest and, of course, co-author with Alan McCallion of the book The Privatization of Everything, which I'll be talking to him about today. Donald, great to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so I, I, I just want to start with uh, 
Well, not really privatization, but actually it's opposite, which is, I think, very important to understanding the problem of privatization. And that's, of course, the uh, the concept of public goods. Now, we talk about public goods a lot on Jacobin. Uh, I think, you know, lots of progressives are sort of similarly interested in this idea of uh, of, of the public good and of public goods. And uh but I don't think that we often, you know, zero in on exactly what we mean. We kind of have like a vague conception of what that refers to. So you and Alan McCallion use a very specific definition in your book, The Privatization of Everything. And I think it's really important to start with that uh, to kind of help shed light on the problem of privatization. Uh, so just very simply to begin, how do you define public goods and by extension, the common good? Um, well, so, and our definition is in contrast, or maybe even in conflict with sort of the economics textbooks definition. So, mm-hmm. I define public goods in a pretty simple way. First, uh, and three things. One is these are the things that we all need all need to get through life, to get through the day: health, uh, a clean air, education, the ability to move around, mobility and transportation. Uh, now, the you know access to the internet. We you know we all they're the basics. We need them. That's number one. Number two, it's it's also in the, the things that we need everyone to have, right? It's in all of our interests for every child to be educated, for every person in America to have clean water, whether we do or not, whether it's a problem for us or not. We need it's in our economic interest, it's in our political interest, it's in our social interest for everyone to uh, to have those things. And then finally, they're the things that if we believe that they are that everyone needs them equally. That, that, that all means all, then we can only do it with public and government involvement. It doesn't mean the private sector doesn't have a role at some place and somewhere, but it only can be done by government, mm-hmm. fundamentally. You can get everybody health care only if there's government involvement. You can get a, a letter to every corner of the country at the same cost only if you have the public in charge. Mm-hmm. So what, what's different, if, if you don't mind, what's different from the, the, you know, the, the economics textbooks definition says... You know, what's important to understand about that, because it's really common, uh, you know, understanding, they say it's either non, a thing that's either non-rivalrous or non-excludable. And the example I would give is a streetlight. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's using a streetlight to read a map. Someone, you know, you can't exclude somebody else from using the streetlight for the same thing. And in fact, it's non-rivalrous. That's, you know, someone doesn't use up the streetlight. Other mm-hmm. people can use. In that definition, without going too deep, Healthcare is a private good because yes, it's excludable. We do, and yes, it's rivalrous. I mean, in, I mean, in the end, everything has limits. So, in the end, what 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 a what that definition of public goods implies is that the market's in charge, mm-hmm. unless there's you know there's some failure of the market, and that's a problem. Right. Yeah, so so let's turn now to the kind of inner workings of privatization, I guess, um, because I, you know, I suspect most people who are watching the show are pretty well aware of many of the various pitfalls of privatization and specifically to go off of what you just said, the fact that when you put things on the market, uh, that makes them off limits or inaccessible to 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 many people when many of those things like healthcare, water, so on should be 
fundamental rights, right? Um, and and then of course, you know, it's there's something unsavory about obviously uh, businesses making a profit off of these things that should be guaranteed rights. Now, I think that's something that's really interesting about your book as well is you argue in addition to those problems, privatization is kind of this deliberate political strategy that is actually designed to sort of shift power away from the citizenry and toward business interests. Um, can you say a little bit more about that and maybe give some give some examples from your book? Because because you have a lot of very interesting case studies. Yeah, well, the, the strategic impulse of privatization really came out of the late 1980s. So I'll try to do this briefly, because m- many people think Reagan was the great privatization, who unleashed privatization in the country, and that's actually not true. He pretty much failed to privatize much. I mean, you know, the Democrats were still in control of Congress, and, and perhaps more important is people still, you know, the, the New Deal ethic was still alive, mm-hmm. and people still wanted the stuff. You know, they, they want the services. So what came from that was a strategic strategic insights by conservatives, folks at Heritage and Cato, I mean, Heritage and, and other places like that, that said, well, we can use privatization to, to shift the demand for those public things, those public services, from the public to the private. Um, and that would be a beginning way to sort of, you know, break the, the pro-big government, you know, pro-budget consensus. It would also help to organize those interests that want a piece of the pie, right? Mm-hmm. Major corporations. So there was a huge, you know, there was a coalition created of large companies around the country who began to see the opportunities of billion, trillions of dollars in, you know, in revenues. So that, you know, that, so it, it was a strategic insight that really is, I think, it's, I'm glad you raised it because it's really important for us to understand. This is about the dismantling of public services. Mm-hmm. This is really what they want to do. And, of course, shifting it to, you know, to be a cash cow for, mm-hmm. you know, for huge, for, you know, for those that are, you know, businesses that are trying to make money. So you want to give a couple of examples. So I, at the core of it, I also think it's, a, it's an assault on democracy. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of what I have come to believe. And I'll give you know, one example that I've mentioned many times. It's in the book, the, the privatization of Chicago parking meters. I'll do the quick version. 2008, city, you know, the worst of the recession, cities bleeding red ink, really desperate times for, for local and state governments, seriously, and, you know, just unable to meet their budgets. Uh, the mayor uh, announced a proposal to, by a consortium of uh, more, more, three companies, co- global corporations, Morgan Stanley, a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East, and a national parking company, LAZ Parking. They offered the city $1.1 billion up front in cash in exchange for control of the city's 36,000 parking meters for 75 years. Take the deal or, or leave the deal. They voted four days later, four or five days later, and took the deal. What became true after the fact, and this is what's, you know, this is till 2083. Mm-hmm. Incredibly stupid to borrow on that future revenue because we don't know if we'll be driving in 20, you know, by that time. Mm-hmm. But now, if the, in the details of this contract, you know, it's a long term lease fundamentally, if the city wants to eliminate parking spots, either, you know, temporarily for a street fair or more significantly permanently for, you know, dedicated bus lanes or bike lanes or, uh, or you know pedestrian malls to change land use and housing patterns, they have to purchase the spots back. Yeah. So essentially, what that means is that if the city council and the mayor, the people who are elected to run the city of Chicago, want to you know do their job, you know what's the job of a city? Land use, housing, environment, transportation, sort of real fundamentals. Um, they have to consider how much it's going to cost them to make the private contractors whole. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And that essentially ties their hands. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a terrible deal. Um, and everybody kind of recognizes, recognizes it. But the features of that deal are, are very common. Yeah. The private sector going to, you know, the private companies are going to do a long-term or medium-term or short-term or long-term contract. They're going to have features in there that keep their interests protected and profitable. And they all do. Right. Uh, so, so I think that brings up something else that's pretty interesting, which is that, you know, uh, I think especially since you brought up the since you brought up Clinton and the Democrats, uh, lots of politicians like to sort of tout these so-called public private partnerships. Right. And I think the uh, at least the theoretical idea behind them is that uh, the kind of public side of that partnership will sort of rein in the excesses of the private side of that partnership. But that the private side will, of course, you're already shaking your head. The private side will, of course, you know, sort of engender some kind of innovation or efficiency or whatever. And, you know, we, we just heard a great example of how that kind of unravels. But can you say a little bit more about why these partnerships don't actually work? Because could somebody just point to a few bad examples and say, well, those didn't work, but, you know, this this idea is still good. What's wrong with public-private partnerships? Well, first off, remember, everything's a public... When you're talking about infrastructure, roads, bridges, water systems, everything's a public-private partnership at some level because, you know, mm -hmm. we hire companies to build them. So it's mm -hmm. all private. You know, that's, so let's just... You know, I, I, I believe, I haven't been able to do the analysis to turn, that pri public-private partnership is just a nicer term than privatization mm -hmm. politically. So there's been a... <laughs> right. You know, you, you see it much, much more over the last decade or so. So what, here's what's wrong. So the arguments for public-private partnerships are several. One is, as you said, private sector is more efficient. They'll have skin in the game and they'll make sure costs you know, stay down because, because of that. Second is, well, you know, the public sector doesn't have the money for, you know, the billions and, and trillions that we need to rebuild infrastructure. And there's tons of money sitting on the sidelines in the private sector. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, I mean, and, and as you said, they'll be more innovative. So, so let's break that down. First off, they, you know, at the practical level, they say, well, you know, there'll be no new taxes. You can do this with no new taxes. Um, and, and the answer to that's real simple. There's really only one, borrowing the money to build something is the easy part. The hard part's paying it back, and there's only one place you get that money, and that's us, taxes, tolls, and fees. There's no other magic money. So if you shift something from a tax to a toll or a tax to a fee, what's the difference to us? Nothing. So that's number one. Number two is, um, uh, you know, like I, um, so there's plenty of money. That, that, that's kind of the point there. Mm -hmm. Second, um, if, you know, they're going to do it cheaper, better. So let's just, you know, you look at that one. So they're going to do it cheaper means they're going to spend less money on something. Because efficiency is spend less money, put in less effort, get more. It's a, you know, it's a fine concept. So we say, what are you going to spend less money on? And so, and it's a finite list of things you could spend less money on. You could spend less money on services. You know, one of the, I can't remember which road that was privatized. You know, the, the concession, you know, the, the road, the road, you know, the, the, the rest stops closed down or the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the quality of them went down because they weren't cleaned. Um, you could pay the workers less, the people who maintain the road, and, you know, they do that. Um, you could increase the tolls, which you do, that's not a savings, but of course that's the delta, that's the net, they do, because things cost money. Uh, and, then, uh, and then finally, innovation, I think it's worth thinking about, because yeah. maybe someone's got a great idea. Some private sector person or company's got some great idea on how we could do something better. We can purchase that. We don't, that doesn't, you know, we can purchase it, spend money, you give, buy the idea from them if it's, if it's if, you know, if it's good. But keep control of the thing. 
Because in the end, there's a massive amount of money being extracted because, you know, you've got returns to investors, you've got high executive compensation, you've got debt service, to, you know, for, for other deals they're doing. Um, and so we're going to take a lot of money out that we could be using for infrastructure. And then, you know, as I, as I, as I was clear in the Chicago example, we lose control over some of it. There are, there are non-compete clauses in, um, in road deals mm-hmm. that, would, that prevent the public from upgrading uh, com- you know, roads that, quote, compete with that road or adding mass transit. So we sort of lose democratic control of those things. So that's the semi-short answer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do want to return to um, your previous comments about privatization sort of eroding or undermining democracy, uh, because obviously, you know, many pro- proponents of privatization uh, often talk about freedom, right? Like they're like privatization means freedom from government bureaucracy, from, you know, various regulations and red tape. Uh, and that's the thing that kind of, you know, supposedly engenders the efficiency and in innovation. Um, can, can you say a little bit more about how privatization actually hinders freedom, uh, freedom of the freedom of citizens and uh, just just or perhaps maybe the question is, why should we think of freedom differently than people who, you know, are, are pro privatization? That's a great question. So let's um, first off, even before I get to that, privatization doesn't eliminate the responsibility of the public to carry out its purpose and mission. Mm-hmm. So it's the public purpose, and we decide there's, that air should be clean. We pass the Clean Air Act and upgrades to that. We decide. So even if you or and you can go down the list, you know, mm-hmm. clean Clean Water Act, you know, to make sure water is clean. Even if you get it, give it to a private company, that doesn't mean it, it, the public is still in charge, yeah. right? So it doesn't eliminate regulations. It makes it harder to enforce those regulations. It creates interests in, in, in the provision of those services that want to fight regulations because they because they you know add costs to their private you know to their to their bottom line. So um, so you know that that's the you know so super important. So the thing about going to freedom. Um, as we said earlier, markets exclude. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a thing. It's, you know, I just say that in a very neutral, objective way. Nobody, if you're a business person and you operate in the market and you want to sell something, you don't sell things to people who don't have the money to buy it. Right. right. You just, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we all know business people or people who own restaurants or whatever, you just don't do it. So, the, the, going back to the original discussion of public goods is we, if we need everyone to have access to clean air or to clean water or to health, if we put it in the market, we are eliminating people's freedom. I mean, you know, you're not free if, you, you know, if you're struggling with college debt or if you're struggling without, you know, you, you, can't, you can't pay for your health care bills and all that. That's not freedom. Freedom to exploit Freedom to, you know, everybody wants to do what they want to do. And businesses do that. I, I think I'll take it to another place is that businesses do really one thing. They sell stuff. Mm-hmm. And what are they, so what do they pay attention to? And it's, it's just objectively. How many things they sell, how much it costs to make them, how many, uh, what's the delta, what's the, you know, what's the uh, profit margin, what's the unit price, what's their market share. Anything that gets in their way I mean, not anything, but things that get in their way that could that uh, and were counter to those metrics, um, they say limit their freedom. Mm-hmm. 
unfortunately, it also limits our freedom when we give it to them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to now ask you why privatization sort of became so widespread, because earlier you had alluded to the fact that it was sort of birthed out of these conservative think tanks, but actually, like, Reagan couldn't push it very hard, Did, uh, c- couldn't push it very far despite his, you know, best intentions or his despite the fact that he tried very hard um, and that the kind of consensus really only consolidated under the Clinton administration. Uh, How how exactly did that happen? How did this become a bipartisan initiative, I suppose? Well, there's a few things. One, as I mentioned earlier, was sort of, I mean, you know, know, when Clinton said the era of big government is over, Mm -hmm. it's not just that he was a new Democrat. He was responding to the political environment I mean, we can set that aside. He was, but he was responding to the political environment that Reagan helped create. Mm -hmm. There really has been an assault on both the idea and the institution of government that's had great impact. Yeah. So he was, you know, so I just take it out of, you know, again, put it objectively. He was he was responding in that particular environment. Mm -hmm. So you have. So on one hand, conservatives and government, you know, and corporations are all creating an assault on government because they don't want regulations and they don't want to, they want lower taxes and they want all these things. They want political control. So you've got, you know, the, you've, you're creating an environment that's favorable, right? You're also at the same time creating an environment that says, well, market's good, right? The market's really the better instrument. So there's sort of an ideal, an idea project that's going on. Um, that's, that has enormous impact. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, you know, what I said earlier, privatization became a strategy saying, well, you know, if the private sector is more efficient, why not give it to them? Because we can do that and still, uh, as an elected official or a policymaker, still make sure we're providing the services. So, you know, sort of these things all nest together. Um, then, of course, there's the growth of the lobby, right? Yeah. Um, if you're the head today, if you're the head of the, you know, one of the two big private prison companies, you know, you want a piece of that $90 billion that's spent every year in corrections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's logical. And 20, maybe 30 years ago now, you know, corporations were not really good at working at the city and state level, lobbying and, you know, selling their wares. They really are now. Mm-hmm. They understand that, that, you know, the federal government's a bank. The money flows to the states, you know, often to the states and local governments. And that's where stuff happens. Yeah. You know, the last thing that sort of I think is important in the strategic sense is that governments have been contracting for forever. That's not an issue. And so the other strategic insight is that they that they, the conservative theorists said, well, let's take this normal governing practice and turn it into an ideological agenda, piece of our agenda. Mm-hmm. So contracting out became something that everybody wanted to do. If you're certainly on the Republican side, you know, on the conservative side, okay, our job is to go contract stuff out, you know, because you also get to break unions and, you know, and a whole other set of things. And so, um, I, I, and I, I'll go, last thing I'll say is back to public-private partnerships. There, we're, We are swimming in an ideological sea that has been created over the last 40, 50 years. Government inefficient, private sector efficient. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to, on the left, we need to attack them. We need to smartly attack those uh, ideas and push back on them in the right way. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's all the above. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I, I think that brings us now to the question of where we are with privatization now, right? Because I think in, in you know, in 2020, uh, COVID and the pandemic sort of 
at least for me, like laid bare many of the harmful consequences of privatization. Like I think a lot of people started to see that uh, or, you know, started to uh, call more attention to that. And of course, the next year, Joe Biden takes office, uh, at least partly on the pledge that, you know, he wants to sort of revitalize parts of the public sector uh, infrastructure and so on. Um, I think you could argue that his administration has tried to do that uh, to some degree through, you know, uh, bills like Build Back Better. Obviously, those legislative efforts have found mixed success uh, due to being hampered in Congress and so on and so forth. Uh, and and I should also say, though, at the same time, it looks like his administration is continuing a number of, you know, Trump era privatization schemes like moving to privatize Medicare. So I, I suppose, you know, in this moment is do you see the federal government or, you know, uh, legislative bodies in general uh, actually working to curb or roll back privatization at all? And then maybe like a second part to that question is because obviously privatization is still going on, where does it seem to be ramping up most today? Okay, that's a bunch. Okay, <laughs> Sorry, so yeah, that was a few. Is, that's a few. <laughs> okay, so first, um, the good news. Yeah. I mean, first off, you can't, I never said the Biden administration. The Biden administration is doing something. I mean, he's got, you know, they have certain powers over things. They've done sure. some good executive orders that raise the bar on contracting, which is super important. Uh, you know, raise wages and, and, and other things. Mm -hmm. So the other thing to note about Build Back Better is we came kind of two, um, I think fundamentally two votes away mm -hmm. from universal child care. Mm -hmm. That's a significant shift in American uh, politics yeah. and governments, right? Creating an entirely new public good. So that's, you know, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally, essentially, because we all need, you know, child care. I mean, everybody needs child care. So, you know, broadband, lots of money for broadband. There's a lot. I mean, there's a, the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, there's a lot of money flowing, and that's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, second, in terms of, um, so I, are there people pushing back at the federal level? You know, it's, I'm sure, we don't, you know, that I, I wouldn't want to be in Congress right now. Um <laughs> You know, there's lots of efforts to slow down, uh, mostly unsuccessful, but a few, but actually we had some success on slowing down the growth of charter schools mm -hmm. because public education is under full-scale assault in America by not just CRT, that's the sideshow, right. uh, vouchers and charters. We are creating yeah. parallel systems of education. And a new regulation was, you know, is in process right now, is actually, I think, was finally adopted um, that would be helpful in, uh, for, in the use of the charter school money that comes to the federal government. I won't get into the weeds. So it's a, a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, folks are fighting at the federal level. At the state and local level, yes. I mean, because, you know, again, I think most of this is happening at the state and local level. Right. Look at prisons. There's mostly state. You know, federal government doesn't have that many prisons in the end. Healthcare moves, you know, Medicare goes through the states. Uh, education happens at the states. Infrastructure happens at the states. The federal government is just a bank. And so on the, on the negative side, you know, there are red states all over the country that are passing voucher initiatives and increasing the number of charters available and, you know, passing preemption laws and, you know, full-scale assault and everything. And we can, you know, we could talk about that forever um, on democracy in, in every which way. Um, in other places, there's, you know, although even that, you know, there was a, you know, this is all in the weeds, even that, even in Tennessee, that one of the reddest of the red states at this point, um, was, uh, has, you know, there's backlash against some of the governor's efforts to create school vouchers and charter schools 
mm. by not just Democrats, by Republicans, because it take because of the specifics, it takes away local control. Some of the what the government wants to do takes away local control. So there's pushback in many in in many places. Mm-hmm. There are organizations and unions and others that are fighting and winning. Mm-hmm. There are water systems that are being remunicipalized, brought back in house because it's cheaper and better and more, you know, and more public control. So it's a pitched battle. Yeah. Um, and so, but I, the, the final thing I'd say to remember is that there are corporations, huge corporations, and, and including Wall Street, right? Because they've got all this cash to invest in, that want a piece of the. I think we're up to nine or ten trillion dollars spent, you know, in, by governments in America. Mm-hmm. They're not going away, so they're operating at the ideological, the ideal level, not ideological. Mm-hmm. That's government bad, inefficient, yada yada. Right. And we've got the answers. And plus, you know, if you're if you're a mayor and you've got problems, and your water, I was just in Jackson, Mississippi, and your mm-hmm. water system is falling apart, and somebody comes to you and says, "We could do it cheaper. We could do it better. We could even do it more expensively, but it won't be your problem anymore." I'd want to take that. I would consider seriously taking that deal because it's right. So it's so anyhow, it's a it's yeah. a lot. So you know, it's, it's there's good news and bad news all over right. the country. Right. I think then I I, I want to wrap up on kind of this ideological question uh, because something that you get at in your book is uh, you know obviously after many many decades of widespread privatization, the government's uh, capacity and capability to kind of deliver for its citizens has been severely undermined in many ways, and I think you know that is obviously very dangerous because that in turn lowers public trust in the government, and you know if you have low trust in the government. Why are you going to vote for politicians who want to expand the public sector, which you already see as kind of like, you know, non-functioning or, or you know, something that is like a huge pain to you, right? So, so uh, how do, exactly do we break out of this vicious cycle or like how do we start to break out of it? Well, it's both, I was, I'll answer both. How do we break out and how do we start? We, we, we have to think long, first off. Now, think long. You don't act long. You act today. Right. So that's why it's start now, but also think long is that, you know, we have to shift that envir- idea environment. And I, I that's one thing we have to do. And, mm-hmm. I'll, and I think there's two sides to that. On one side, we had to what I what I'm calling now, we need a street level critique of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Privatization, deregulation. They say more efficient. They say the profit motive, you know, makes things better. They say competition makes things better. We need to critique. I mean, and so there's truth in all those things. There's, there's efficiencies and competition can be, do good things in certain places, you know, listed on the ball field. But we have, to, we have to say that those are not universal truths. They have real distortions. And we have to attack them, you know, in a serious way. Um, and and I, anyway, so that's one. I could go into each one of those things. The other thing is then we have to lift up... You know, I used to believe that our one of our central tasks are we have to rebuild trust in government. I, I believe something a little different now. I think our 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 central task as progressives mm-hmm. um, is to rebuild commitment and uh, to the idea of public. Mm-hmm. Right there are things like I said at the beginning that the things that we can only do if we do them together. Mm-hmm. Right, and so and then the institutions are ours to always make better to battle over because dem- democracy is a a, a compet- you know a, a, a a battlefield, that's mm-hmm. right, and that always will be. We need to battle over, we need to battle control, but we also have to continually be out there making them better. Yeah. It's a, governments are really complicated. It's the most complicated institution in civilized history in America, you know, American governments. So we have to do that. The second um, part, of, the other part of that, though, is 
we on the left are often in the, you know, at least the past, in my professional life, have been helping the right wing mm-hmm. uh, in, in fomenting distrust of government, right? Mm-hmm. For several reasons. It fails in some places. Cops are killing black kids. That's for real. Or OSHA failed to, you know, to, to enforce a regulation that, you know, that caught, you know, in an accident in a, in a plant happened. They're just, they're, again, they're complicated institutions. Right. But, but, um, but if we're not, if the right wing is attacking the idea of government and the institution of government, and we are too, because also because we want it to do better, we, mm-hmm. you know, we want to pass new laws, but we're not defending the institution even if inco- or the and the progress, even if incomplete and not perfect, then what do we expect to happen? Right. Um, one of the things you may, may have caught in the book is I say one of the things we need to do is I call surface the state. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. It's all around us, and it ain't all bad. The right. water comes out of the tap every time I turn around. Now I live in L.A. The water's decent. The paint on our walls used to have lead in it. It doesn't because of public action. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to hold two things in our head. It isn't perfect. There's lots to do, but there are things that are good, and we need to make the people aware of that always. It's got to be the same kind of drumbeat. And then finally, we have to be the reformers. We have to make contracting better. We have to make you know, government better. We need to root out corruption. We need, to, you know, we need high quality management and, and, and high quality trained staff. Um, so we've, and we should be sending lots of people into, into bureaucracies, not just elected mm-hmm. office, mm-hmm. to actually run the thing because mm-hmm. it's not easy. If you and I were running uh, you know, the city of Los Angeles, we'd mess up too. Right. It's you know. So we have to. You know. I think it's a multiple thing. We need a governing reform agenda, and we need to attack the idea frame as well. All right. Donald Cohen again is co-author with Alan McCallion of the recent book, "The Privatization of Everything." We will put a link to that book down below. Donald, it was great to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Mm-hmm. 